In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today, I am very pleased to announce we are joined by Patricia Murphy, the newest member of the AJC political team. Patricia, so great to have you. Thank you. It's so great to be on your podcast and then also to be on your team, Greg Bluestein. It's wonderful. So let's introduce every let's 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 let everyone get a kind of sense of who Patricia Murphy is before we dive into the crazy, busy week that it was. Uh, Patricia, tell, tell, tell our listeners a little about yourself. So I, uh, I mean, I can go way back. I can tell you that I was born in Atlanta at Piedmont Hospital. I mean, I can go way back. My first job out of college was working for Senator Sam Nunn back in the day. And if any um, Georgian lost their passport and needed to go somewhere quickly, they would call me. And that was my job, my first job out so of college. So you got a lot of frantic yeah. calls. Many frantic calls. And people, just please, everybody, check your passport if you're going somewhere. Just save people those calls. Um, um, but some people really needed them on an emergency basis, and they would call me Patricia Murphy. So it was not so glamorous, but it really did matter to people. And that's what your senators are there for in many cases is to, you know, take care of the constituents and help help them get what they need. So I was a small cog in that wheel. Um, I went on to work for three U.S. senators, um, including Max Cleland, another Georgian. And then um, after nine years in the Senate and on Capitol Hill, um, I got out of politics. It was just a bit much for me. It was a way too much for me. And so I went to journalism school. Um, I still love politics, but I went to journalism school to make a move over to journalism. And I've been um, covering Capitol Hill and presidential campaigns, Senate campaigns, national campaigns um, ever since um, in D.C. for a long time. And then I'm back in Georgia now um, where my family is and my husband's family is. And, and we have our own family. Here, so now I'm here, and I finally have a job with my hometown newspaper, and I'm really thrilled about it. Woo! And through January, you'll be you'll be working on a lot of the campaigns we've been covering for the last few years, including the two U.S. Senate races, the some of the more competitive U.S. House races, and a lot of things in between. Absolutely. I mean, I love politics. I am wild about politics. And for me, Georgia in 2020 is like a kid in a candy shop. And I'm with a bunch of other candy lovers on the AJC politics team. So, I mean, it's awesome. There, Georgia politics have been very predictable for quite some time. So to be covering specifically Georgia this year is just a, a ride. And I, it, it's been great so far. So it's no better time to start this job. Amen. 
amen, sister. And let's get right into the sweet stuff uh, with the the crazy news cycle that was last week. And if you thought that the, the first chaotic debate wasn't enough, the waking up to the news, because I, I didn't stay up till 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Um, on, fr- on Friday morning. I woke up to the news of President Trump's diagnosis of coronavirus to my wife, who sat up ramrod in the bed and said, holy crap, President Trump contracted coronavirus. He, he tested positive uh, overnight. And I was like, wait, what? And so a kind of a sleepy day for me, tying up loose ends on a bunch of stories that we're running this week, became a hectic day for, for me. And I know as well as for you, Patricia. Yes. Well, when I heard, I think I found out around four in the morning, I tend to just wake up periodically throughout the night because I have a seven-year-old twins. I don't know why I still do. I wake up just to make sure everyone's okay. So I woke up at four and saw the news and you just, it's so hard to wrap your head around it. Um, at first I found it, it's both, the news is both totally shocking and quite predictable in a lot of ways. Um, I think because um, of how we've seen the president with so many large crowds exposed to just a ton of people, I think it was a numbers game. Um, But to see him um, not only diagnosed, but then quickly um, airlifted to Walter Reed uh, Medical Center in Bethesda, um, it really took a turn for just from being, oh my gosh, to wow, this has major implications on um, the president, on on the campaign, on the function of government, on the line of succession, you, you just, it starts to just spiral off so many stories. Um, and I think we're still just getting into the beginning of that story. Agree. And as of this taping, the president's still hospitalized over at Walter Reed. He went on, he had a kind of a brief, um, well, I don't know what you call it, a parade, a tour of the cheering supporters outside Walter Reed who were waving Trump flags and kind of, you know, had a quick caravan ride um, around them all on Sunday night, but he is still hospitalized as of this taping. Um, But what we really do is we look into the Georgia ramifications of all this, and we've got poll after poll after poll that show really that the the, the race for U.S. Senate in Georgia, as well as the presidential race in Georgia, which is a must-win state for Trump, is is, is balancing on a knife's edge, as close as it is, right? It, it, it can't be closer in some of these polls that show 47-47 or 46-46 between the president and Joe Biden. And how that all, uh, how his diagnosis will play out on the campaign trail remains to be seen, but it certainly upends um, the final weeks of the presidential campaign. It means that he had to cancel a whole suite of rallies, including um, some of his surrogate rallies. His son, Donald Trump Jr., was supposed to come to Georgia on Monday, and, and that got scrapped. Yeah, it... All of that polling that we were saying that is so tight, not just for the presidential races, but also for um, the Senate race between uh, Senator Perdue and John Ossoff. And then uh, in the second Senate race, those are very tight numbers in the in the race for Kelly Leffler's seat. And all of those polls were conducted before the president's diagnosis and before this cascade of events that have happened since then. And so we just don't know what kind of an effect it will have. You have to assume it will have some effect. Um, Um, But this race has been, especially for president, has been so incredibly stable, despite the numerous destabilizing events throughout the year, um, that I'll I'll be really interested to see how it shows up in polls. And then also as we have a chance to get out and speak with voters and people at um, events, if there are still events, how does this affect their, how they're consuming this information? And does it change the way anybody's planning on voting. We just don't know. We do know that the president 
really wants to be talking and wanted to be talking about Amy Coney Barrett and um, his Supreme Court nomination. And this has put um, the progress of that nomination into question. And it's also put the focus on the coronavirus and how the country is handling it. And his diagnosis is almost a microcosm of how the country is faring. And so um, it'll be just so interesting to see what Georgians do with this information as it continues to play out. So like he really wanted to be talking about anything but the pandemic itself, right? I mean, polls showed that when it came to the issue of how he handled the pandemic, it was one area where Joe Biden routinely beat him, um, got the edge over Trump on on that that issue. So he was trying to change the subject these last few months far away from the pandemic and towards the economy, towards social issues, towards Amy Coney Barrett, towards whatever it was that wasn't the pandemic. And of course, this diagnosis kind of cemented that these final weeks will definitely focus on the pandemic. And I can, one of the things you mentioned earlier was just what a difference this could make on the campaign trail. And having been out there Friday, and there was several events over the weekend as well, um, I can tell you from a Republican standpoint, not much. Um, You know, Republicans were already out doing in-person events long before Democrats uh, you know, since June, Republicans have been kind of out in force, knocking on doors and holding in-person rallies. And I went to um, two separate events early Friday, right after the news broke. Um, one of them was at the Cobb Galleria Center. It was a Faith and Freedom Coalition meeting conference with with um, more than a dozen Republican speakers, including Doug Collins, including Kelly Leffler, including, including Senator David Perdue. Um, most in the crowd were not wearing masks. Um, the only difference I could tell was that uh, Marsha Blackburn, the senator from Tennessee, um, who had been on the Air Force One with the president shortly before his diagnosis, uh, she socially distanced herself and did like a virtual zoom in from behind the building. Um, but then she appeared with Senator Leffler a few hours later at a restaurant up in Forsyth County, Georgia. And um, she appeared in person. And she right right when she got there, she revealed that she had had an, a, a rapid test that was negative. So So she was in the middle of a kind of crowded restaurant where, again, not many people were wearing masks. So, uh, and those Republican candidates, Senator Leffler, Doug Collins, um, to a degree, David Perdue, who hasn't had many events at all, period. But they've all said they're not changing their protocol at all. They're not requiring masks. They're not necessarily requiring social distancing. Um, They're not doing temperature screenings in some cases. Um, While Democrats are still very, very reluctant to come back on the campaign trail, their events have been outside. When they have had events, they've been socially distanced, um, uh, you know, giveaways of signs and things like that and, and, and speeches and whatnot, but not indoors um, and not in the crowded spaces. Well, and it provides such a contrast to what Democrats are doing, what Democrats have been doing this whole time. We really have not seen um, much of Joe Biden, period, let alone in Georgia or any members of his team. Um, and the president really has made fun of him for that. And right before the debate started calling him Basement Joe, which as an effect of, oh, you're still hiding in your basement from the coronavirus. And look at all this that I'm doing. Um, and uh, my biggest question last week before this happened, and now I'm almost kind of doubling down on this, my question was, can Democrats afford to play by their own rules and set a higher bar for themselves when it comes to just the nuts and bolts of campaigning? And in a way, I it, it was the Democrats sort of unilaterally disarming and saying, we're not going to knock on doors. We're not going to have rallies. We're not going to um, 
do get out the votes at events. We're not going to see people. We're not going to be in close touch. We're not going to send all of these messages that voters typically get um, to say, please vote for us. You got to vote for us. And here's how exciting we are. Um, Democrats simply weren't doing that. And you compare that to what the Republicans have been doing, which is so much energy effort. They're out there. And now in a way, the choice to be almost invisible has has reinforced their message of competence of the message they're trying to send. We are, we're more competent when it comes to the coronavirus and look at what happened to the president because he's not doing what we're doing. And so um, we are, I know going to start trying to find out what get out the vote efforts look like for these campaigns. Um, How do you get out the vote if you're not getting out the vote the way you usually do? Um, And can you deliver voters if you don't, in some cases, campaigns will literally deliver voters. They'll give them rides to the polls. If you're not doing that, how do you get your voters to vote? Um, how do you get them to the polls? And it's such an unknown, and it's been a big risk for the Democrats um, in one way, but obviously a different kind of risk for Republicans. And we know Repo- we know politicians don't like risky choices when it comes to elections. And so um, the, each each side has made their decision on this and and we'll find out who made the better choice. Totally. I mean, the, and the weird thing is here in Georgia, um, Republicans have kind of flipped the script. I mean, it was Democrats that always had the, the stronger ground game. They, 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 especially with Stacey Abrams, emphasized in-person contact, uh, you know, as opposed to, they still spent tons of money on TV ads, but they talked about the importance of in-person contact and, and Republicans would kind of always look from across the aisle in, in awe or in, or in envy of the democratic machine, even, even as they were winning statewide elections, uh, at a more narrow clip, but still winning. Um, well this time around, it's the Republicans who have that sort of juggernaut, that, that in-person ground game. And it's not for democratic lack of trying. It's just because Democrats aren't doing the same level of, they, they, they're not doing the same level of in-person intensity. Um, and just now, I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, starting to have in-person events, John Ossoff's first in-person event, was just two weeks ago. Reverend Warnock, the front runner in the, against Kelly Leffler in the Democratic race, um, his first in-person event was just three or four weeks ago um, since the pandemic. So they're just starting to get back up. But we're, it's going to be interesting because we're going to see firsthand um, how those efforts are translating into early votes starting on uh, Monday the 12th when early in-person voting starts in earnest here in Georgia. Yeah. I mean, it's almost this crazy real-time experiment of how do you campaign if you don't campaign at all in some ways. Um, And Democrats, they have activists sending out literally tens of thousands of postcards, handwritten postcards as a way to connect with voters. Um, Over the weekend, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff um, and Hank Johnson had a drive-through sign pickup. So instead of your traditional rally, um, it's stay in your car, don't get out, everyone's wearing masks. Um, But we still see in polling, Democrats are liking the numbers they're seeing, and they certainly are not short on cash. I mean, for the one thing that they don't have to worry about is, I mean, especially small dollar donors are just dumping buckets of money into these campaigns. And um, Democrats are really able to still continue to fundraise, even though they're not doing the old fashioned grip and grin fundraisers. So um, there's probably many candidates out there who are glad they don't have to do that. Um, but they're, they're still able to keep up in some ways, and they're just having to be wildly experimental in others. And their poll numbers, at least, are 
pretty are as good as they could hope them to be at this point in the cycle, I think. Yeah. And speaking of money, we're talking um, $150 million um, total on just TV ad spending um, alone for the two U.S. Senate races, which are both going to shatter um, the record of 74 or so million dollars that, that Senator Perdue spent in 2014 on his election bid. Um, and look, Georgia's no changer to, to, to shattering records. We had John Ossoff's 2017 special election that cost $60 million against Karen Handel. He ended up losing uh, by four points, but shattered all sorts of records by raising $30 bucks and overall a $60 million uh, campaign. And then, um, then the Stacey Abrams versus Brian Kemp in 2018 was more than $100 million. So that's set a new record for state spending. And now we're going to, now we've already topped that with the David Perdue, John Ossoff race. So buckets of money are being spent in Georgia. Um, and, and I think the pandemic, um, she kind of changes that too, because it makes folks rely even more on TV and digital ads, um, than, uh, than other means of reaching out to voters because there's just not as many voters out and about as there would have been. I think that's exactly right. I mean, we're seeing so many ads, but it typically used to be ads in addition to all the other things you're seeing. Um, for Democrats especially, it's ads, and that's it. And uh, whether it's on your television, on your social media, um, they're really having to lean hard on those messages. Um, I think the other piece of what's different this year when it comes to money um, is the introduction of Senator Kelly Loeffler into that Senate race. No matter how much money Democrats raise to run against her, she'll have more. And I'm so fascinated to see, uh, you know, we look at John Ossoff, more money doesn't mean more votes necessarily, um, but certainly it's it's one area that Kelly Loeffler just doesn't have to worry about, and um, it's it's a lot for anybody running against her to say, "Look at me, I raised twenty million. Oh, that's not enough. Never mind, <laughs> forget it." So, at a certain point, you can oversaturate your message, but um, it's a uh, it's a it's a new kind of candidate. We've always we've seen many self funders, but we have never seen um, such a bottomless pit of resources um, that Senator Leffler is going to have a lot uh, to be able to, a lot of resources to be able to lean on in these races. And um, it makes it a little more of a daunting challenge for anybody going up against her. And by the way, that $20 million is, a, is not only a floor, she'll spend at least that much, but also just one of the buckets of money that that is being spent on her behalf. Because you also have this pro Leffler group called, the acronym is GOV. So it's allied with with Gov- Governor Kemp as well, but that's already spent six million plus on TV ads. And you've also got groups, as we've mentioned in past stories, like the Georgia Life Alliance, that um, have never really raised that much money, but are suddenly, after endorsing Kelly Leffler, have raised gobs of money. And uh, that group um, spent about five hundred grand in um, in backing Leffler on TV ads too. So you know, there's just different ways that she's getting that message out. But there's a lot of money being spent. And Patricia, before we we go. I also want to shift a little ahead to the the uh, Wednesday big debate because we're not sure if there'll be any more presidential debates. And I'm not sure how many people really want to see more presidential debates after what happened last week um, in the first presidential showdown. But um, the vice presidential debate between VP Mike Pence, who was just in town in, in Atlanta um, a few days ago, and um, Senator Kamala Harris is going to be huge in a sense uh, because of the pandemic showing that, hey, you know, what, what the president is sick and the vice and, and his Democratic opponent 
is in his late seventies. Both of these men are, are very vulnerable, right? Um, and so it, sh- it cast a, a new light on on the people who would step in to succeed them if anything horrible should happen. Well, I think that's exactly right, and I think especially for um, for Joe Biden, um, Kamala Harris has never been has not been viewed in in quite this way. She certainly was a presidential candidate, um, but because of uh, Joe Biden's age, she is really. Um, not just plan B, she's the future of that ticket. And so um, it's a, it'll be uh, a new level of scrutiny and a new level of um, of information to process for voters. And we've seen her debate very, very skillfully uh, against no one other, you know, no less than Joe Biden, who um, got, uh, who got sort of treated to a little bit of an attack from, um, from, her in there in a previous debate. Um, but it'll be the first time that we see her debating somebody who she doesn't also have to be friends with later. And so um, for her to go up against Republicans, this is her bread and butter on Capitol Hill as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. This is where she lives. And it's her happy place is to go up against Republicans and spar, um, you know, just as as deep as she needs to go, she's ready to go there. So I think it'll be really interesting for voters to see her, not just um, as somebody debating, but debating Republicans, and as somebody who, um, when you think about Joe Biden, you just have to think about is Kamala Harris ready on day one as well, and so that's where I think we're going to be um, be watching for for Senator Harris. There you go. Well, Patricia, thank you so much for joining on your what like second week here at the AJC. So we're going to be <laughs> well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to be putting your work more than you ever know, and we're so happy to have you. Uh, and first of many uh, visits to our show as well. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to ajc.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.